0: My name is Danny Newman. Uh, many of you might know me as PD Newman, which is what I publish my books and my papers under. Um, before I get started, I want to do uh, kind of a disclaimer because I've I've done talks like this um, a number of times where. Uh, some men might get off on the wrong idea that this is about promoting the use of drugs within Freemasonry. That's not what we're talking about, but we are going to talk about the use of drugs within Freemasonry, but it's going to be a something we're talking about in the past. So at at no point in this talk and, and nowhere in my books, are you going to find any, uh, any ideas about um, bringing this stuff back i don't think this is these are practices that need to be uh resurrected in a masonic context i don't think we are anymore at a position where we would benefit from something like that but that being said in the 18th century uh, there were a number of masons who felt that this experience could Strengthen it could validate, uh, and it could, uh, I think, in their minds, sort of uh, give gnosis or knowledge where previously faith had been kind of the the backbone of the way these people were operating. This is the Listener's Lodge,
1: a podcast rooted in Freemasonry. I'm your host,
0: Mitch Denning. This is a condensation of the material that's presented in my new book. Uh, it's called Angels in Vermilion. Now this builds on the territory i published in my first book alchemically stoned but the limitations of alchemically stoned were that uh, we were able to point our finger and say these masons were using this drug in a masonic context but we couldn't say how that came to happen we couldn't point our finger and say um, that they were necessarily appropriating a symbol that was already in masonry or were they uh was this kind of a hidden tradition within masonry that, that people like Cagliostro who will learn about, um, kind of brought to the fore and was the first to really talk about it openly. So my new book answers those questions and that's what we're going to talk about today. So part one of this talk is going to be on the history of the philosopher's stone, um, which is really the transmission that we're going to follow, uh, each of these cases are kind of, we're gonna see that they're kind of beads along a, a longer thread, um, and that thread oh. being something called the Philosopher's Stone. Now the term the Philosopher's Stone appears to have first been used by the third century Gnostic Hellenistic alchemist Zosimos of Panopolis. Zosimos was an Egyptian priest and artisan principally concerned with the dyeing or tincturing of metals for the same to be used in temple statuary and paraphernalia, although metallurgy was admittedly not his sole concern in regard to the royal art. A self-proclaimed student of the earliest known practitioner of the royal art, Maria Prophetissima, Zosimos's alchemy was clearly that of the operative variety however even at such an early date there was already an underlying speculative that is a mystical or metaphysical element to his and his master's work this spiritual element though for a time gradually fell by the wayside as alchemy became over the years even more materialistic in its pursuits and focus through the centuries the stone came to be associated less with the tincturing of metals and more with the dubious notion of actually transmutating base metals into higher metals, silver and gold. By the time of the Middle Ages, this superficial interpretation had fully taken root and become commonplace among alchemical practitioners. The 13th century German Catholic, Dominican friar and bishop, St. Albertus Magnus, for example, claimed to have been present at just such a a suspicious transmutation. Even so, at least two centuries prior, we still see Islamic alchemists, such as the polymath Avicenna, carrying Zosimos's torch when he said plainly, quote, Those of the chemical craft know well that no change can be affected in the different species of substances, though they can produce the appearance of such a change, end quote. It was around, around the time of the end of the Middle Ages that alchemy began to co- recover its metaphysical flavor. As Dan Merker, a past faculty member of the Toronto Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis and visiting scholar in the Department for the Study of Religion, wrote, quote, the founders of Greek alchemy, Maria the Jewess and Zosimos of Panopolis were certainly mystics, but two early instances do not constitute a tradition. There are no claims to revelation in the writings of other Hellenistic alchemists. Neither is mysticism to be found in the works of Arabic alchemy that I have been able to consult. Mysticism is not demonstrable in Western alchemy prior to the late Middle Ages. End quote. If this is true, we would argue that it was the rediscovery of alcohol distillation by Raymond Lully and chiefly the emergence of Swiss alchemist and physician Philippus. Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, better known by his moniker Paracelsus, and the entheogenic potential of his plant Spigeria just after the Middle Ages, which prompted a mystical resurgence within alchemy. By the time of the Renaissance, thanks in part to the innovations and expansions of Paracelsus, Serious practitioners of alchemy, while still maintaining an interest in metallic ores, as well as gemstones, began to turn their attention toward hidden medicinal plants, hidden medicinal virtues of plants and fungi. Following the work of our Swiss physician, there was a notable shift in interest among alchemical practitioners from the so-called dry path of alchemy or work with minerals and metals to the wet path or work with spagyrics or plant alchemy. In fact, even where the transmutation of base metals was still of primary interest, the Philosopher's Stone, by which that transmutation was believed to be effected, was still thought to be found in the plant kingdom. Many descriptions of the stone have been given over the centuries, a number of which were collated by the fictitious French alchemist Fulcanelli in his sophomore effort, Dwellings of the Philosophers. Perhaps the finest description comes from the German physician and alchemist, John Friedrich Schweitzer, usually known by his pen name Helvetius, who wrote in his book, Vitulus Aureus, that the stone is as, quote, a brilliant carbuncle, translucent as crystal, compact, and exceedingly weighty. It is easily fused in fire, as resin, and after the flight of artificial quicksilver, just as wax. It is fragile as glass in a powder, saffron-colored, but in a solid mass, red like a ruby. Its purple color is the mark of perfect fixation and of fixed perfection. It is a red powder with almost a saffron tinge, liquid like resin, transparent like crystal, fragile like glass, is of a rubinant color and of great specific gravity, end quote. Whether in the form of a stone, a powder, an elixir, or a tincture, the common theme running through all these descriptions, like Ariadne's red thread winding through King Minos's labyrinth, is the lapis's characteristic ruddy, tawny hue. preceded by negredo, or blackening, and albedo, or whitening, this morning redness, or aurora, as one German theosopher praised it, alludes to the rubedo or red and final stage of the alchemical magnum opus. It signifies the completion of the alchemist's great work. By the time of the Age of Enlightenment, alchemy had largely fallen out of vogue, and the stone that is not a stone became the stuff of myth or, at best, of Metaphor. Purged of its metaphysical component, the once royal art was refashioned by the enlightened as chemistry, and the remainder was consigned to the realm of pseudoscience. In spite of that fact, the arcane discipline did live on in a number of counter-enlightenment mystics and secret societies, including Pyotr Ivanovich Melisino's Russian Rite of Freemasonry and Alessandro di Cagliostro's Egyptian Rite of Freemasonry and others, where the true nature of the stone was revealed by degrees or grades, often under the penalty of death. Due perhaps to the widespread demystification of alchemy that resulted from the Enlightenment, it was there, behind the tiled doors of Masonic lodges, that the stone was brought out of relative obscurity and into the light of day. Under solemn oaths of secrecy, it was gradually revealed to wide-eyed candidates that the philosopher's stone is nothing less than the vermilion, entheogenic extract of certain psychedelic species of acacia. While it would be another hundred years before Hungarian chemist and psychiatrist Stefan Istvan Zara would inject himself intramuscularly with DMT extracted from acacia, thus discovering the entheogenic potential of the compound. As we demonstrated in our first book, the hallucinogenic effects of DMT and the acacia were well-known to certain Masonic circles throughout the 18th and even 19th centuries. Among alchemists, the motif of transmutation of, of the, the transmutation of base metals into higher metals is often projected into the realm of spiritual analogy, where it becomes a trope for the entheogenic revelation of the alchemist himself, who then becomes the object of transmutation. Obviously, dimethyltryptamine does not have the potential to transmute actual base metals into gold. It does, however, have the power to transmute baseline consciousness into transcendent illumination. Indeed, for along with the stone, the alchemist, too, is said to be perfected. To quote the profound Christian mystic Valentin Tomberg, quote, just as all base metals can be transformed into silver and into gold, so are all the forces of human nature susceptible to transformation into silver or into gold. Following the birth of spiritualism in the burned-over district of upstate New York in the 1840s, the 19th century saw a widespread revival of the occult in both europe and the americas resurrecting along with it a public interest in the arcane subject of alchemy unfortunately due to the accumulated ignorance of the matter during that time the nature of the stone then obscured by two centuries of widespread disregard and neglect was further obfuscated by the poor and oftentimes reaching interpretations and explanations attached to it by those who styled themselves adepti and magistery of the art. Since the 19th century occult revival, the Philosopher's Stone has drifted even further into virtual obscurity. The purpose of this talk then is to reconnect Renaissance alchemy with its entheogenic roots. So far as we're aware, the entheogenic model of alchemical interpretation is the only one which at once satisfies all of the requirements demanded in the literature of the Philosopher's Stone. Part 2. Freemasonry and the Sprig of Acacia. Founded in London in 1717, the Masonic fraternity was described by the Scottish Freemason William Preston as a peculiar system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. One of those symbols is the sprig of acacia said to have marked the grave site of the Masonic grandmaster Hiram Abiff, Biff, who is the allegorical chief architect and master of works at the construction of King Solomon's temple. As Zara discovered in 1956, Many species of acacia are possessed of the powerful hallucinogenic compound, DMT, the so-called spirit molecule. We'll explore how over two centuries prior to the discovery of the psychedelic effects of DMT, the Royal Society's fascination with the angelic actions of Elizabethan advisor Dr. John Dee and his alchemist assistant, Sir Edward Kelly, led to the creation of an entheogenic brand of alchemical Freemasonry. There, candidates for initiation were administered psychedelic doses of DMT via a psychoactive species of acacia. However, before we get into that, let us first see how the gentle craft of Freemasonry has dovetailed in the past with the royal art of alchemy, and coincidentally with the royal society. The convergence of Freemasonry with alchemy goes at least as far back as the 1640s when the alchemist Elias Ashmole was among the first to be made a speculative mason. The antiquary and biographer of Elizabethan advisor, Dr. John Dee, Elias Ashmole published a collection of alchemical manuscripts in 1650, *Fasciculus Chemicus, which was written by one Arthur Dee, the son of Dr. John Dee while serving as court physician to Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich in Russia. Two years later, he published his more important work, Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, an extensively annotated compilation of alchemical poems in the English language, among them being Sir Edward Kelly's work, Kelly being Dee's personal scryer or seer. We will return to Dee and Kelly in a moment. Another convergence of Freemasonry with alchemy occurred in the early 1720s, nearly a century after Ashmole, when French-born British clergyman John Theophilus de Sagulier served as the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. A fellow himself, de Sagulier acted as research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton and the Royal Society, each of whom were known to have been alchemically inclined, if not actual practicing alchemists. In fact, in early 2016, a recipe for the production of the philosopher's stone taken from the American alchemist, George Starkey, and written in Newton's own hand was discovered in a private collection. Moreover, research by Audrey T. Carpenter has uncovered a letter wherein Duke of Chandos urged Desaguliers to persuade the alchemist Baron Silberg, who claimed to have been successful in the transmutation of base metals into gold via Quicksilver, into giving up some of his alchemical secrets. At the very least, these associations demonstrate that Desaguliers and Newton, like Ashmole before them, harbored more than a passing interest in the royal art. Further, Ashmo and Desaguliers were not only notable Freemasons and alchemists, but they were also members of the Royal Society. Prior to Desaguliers' election as Grand Master, there was no mention of a sprig of acacia anywhere in the rituals of Freemasonry. Rather, the reference was to a sprig of cassia, Cinnamonum cassia, a cinnamon like plant native to southern China. Following Desaguliers' stint as Grand Master, Cassia became Acacia in virtually every Masonic lodge in Europe, as evinced by the numerous exposures of the era. According to Masonic historian Dr. David Harrison, de was behind that change. Harrison points out in his groundbreaking book, The Genesis of Freemasonry, that along with fellow clergyman James Anderson, de was instrumental in the development of the Master Mason degree as we have come to know it bringing with him the curious symbol of the sprig of acacia. Acacia is a genus of nearly 1,000 species of tree, some 100 of which are known to contain concentrated amounts of the powerful psychedelic compound DMT. DMT has been used in a ceremonial context among a number of indigenous groups, most notably among the ayahuasca-drinking tribes of Amazonia and the Yopo-snuffing people in the Caribbean. Ayahuasca, also known as yahe, depending on the dialect, is a ceremonial beverage prepared by combining the DMT-containing plants Cicotria viridis or Diplopteris cabrarana with the monoamine oxidase inhibitor-containing vine Banisteriopsis copy. That's a mouthful. DMT is not normally orally active due to the presence of monoamine oxidase in the gut. However, when combined with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor or an MAOI, it becomes active. The effects are profoundly psychedelic and last for up to six hours after drinking. Ayahuasca Ayahuasca use was first documented by Spanish Christian missionaries to South America in the 16th century and was eloquently described by them as the work of the devil. Yopo, on the other hand, also known as apina, is a ritualistic snuff that is prepared by combining the DMT-rich seeds of the acacia-like Anadenanthera colubrina or Anadinanthera peregrina with calcium carbonate that has been created from the calcinated shells of crustaceans, thereby rendering the snuff absorbable by the mucous membranes in the nasal cavity. Unlike ayahuasca, the effects of Yopo last only a few minutes after each insufflation. Radiocarbon testing of materials recovered at Inca Cueva, a site northwest of Humahuaca in the Puna border of Jujuy Province, Argentina, suggests that the use of Yopo seeds as a hallucinogen is over 4,000 years old. Amazingly, in an article known to be in the Royal Society's Possession, Yopo was actually documented by none other than Christopher Columbus during his second voyage to the Americas from 1493 to 1496, where he remarked upon a reddish, cinnamon colored powder that the natives were in the habit of blowing up one another's nostrils. This was accomplished with the use of a hollowed out cane or stick, roughly a foot long and carved, especially for the purpose of insufflating Yopo. The powder is traditionally created from the seeds of anadenanthera colubrina and peregrina. Although, when it's use among the Maypure Indians of Orinoco was first reported by the explorer, A. von Humboldt, he identified the source of the reddish powder as acacia neopo. While ayahuasca is not traditionally prepared from a species of acacia, the latter has certainly been known to have been used in a multitude of inebriating and even entheogenic contexts. In Mexico, for example, the roots of acacia angustifolia are added to pulque, a fermented beverage prepared from the agave cactus. In West Africa, the leaves and bark of acacia campylicantha are added to dolo, which is a brew prepared from sorghum, penicetum, and honey. Dolo is said to inspire, impart strength in its drinker and lift the mood. In Indonesia, in India, and Malaysia can be found acacia catechu. From which is concocted a substance used as an additive to betel quids. Betel quids are consumed by putting a small quid in the mouth between the cheek and gum, similar to how chewing tobacco is consumed. Depending on the mixture, quids can act as either a stimulant or a sedative. In India, too, are two more species of acacia, acacia nilotica and acacia farnesiana, from which are prepared traditional aphrodisiacs and muscle relaxants. In South America, a brew called balche is prepared from the bark of acacia cornigera, And in Australia, a wide variety of acacia leaves are burned as a sacred and medicinal smoke. Even here in America, ever since the creation of laws surrounding the use of sassafras root, which is a precursor to MDMA or ecstasy in foods, the root bark of a species of acacia albeit not a psychoactive variety, has been a key ingredient in some soft drinks, including the world-famous Biloxi, Mississippi-based Barks root beer. So, how exactly did a French-born British clergyman-cum-Newtonian scientist and Masonic grandmaster come to deposit an alien symbol of such entheogenic potency as the sprig of acacia, into the already, be, already workable initiation rituals of a reformed medieval stonemasons' guild. To answer that, we'll first need to turn back toward Elizabethan England, where a pair of daring visionary alchemists were prepared to go to basically any means necessary to elicit intercourse with what they perceived to be angelic, heavenly entities. Part 3, Angelic Actions From visions of magical beings of light to encounters with trans-dimensional spirits, one of the most common experiences reported by users of DMT and other entheogenic compounds is that of contact with what is repeatedly described as angelic entities. According to Dr. Rick Strassman, a clinical associate professor of psychology at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, quote, all spiritual disciplines describe quite psychedelic accounts of transformative experiences, encounters with angelic entities, and a loving presence underlying all of reality. These experiences cut across all denominations. They are also characteristic of a fully psychedelic DMT experience. End quote. Holy books aside, perhaps the most famous example of angelic close encounters comes from the private diaries of astrologer, alchemist, and occultist, Dr. John Dee, suspected English spy and personal advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Though a seasoned astronomer, mathematician, and philosopher, Dee's primary interest was that of discourse with angels. Unable to see or hear the angels himself, Dee was in the habit of employing the aid of a seer or scryer. It was in this capacity that in 1582, Dee hired one, Edward Kelly, also known as Edward Talbot, an occultist, alchemist, and suspected charlatan of ill repute that was pilloried before having his ears cropped for the crime of coining. That is, forgery which involved counterfeiting silver or gold coins with adulterated metals. Where Dee had hired other scryers in the past for the purpose of initiating angelic communication, all to little or no avail, Kelly was apparently amazingly successful in the endeavor, producing immediate and remarkable results. For the following seven years, until 1589, Dee regularly held intensive seance-like sessions with the angels, Kelly always acting in the capacity of seer. While it was clearly Dee who benefited most from the two men's relationship, it was actually Kelly who sought Dee out. At some point before going into Dee's employ, Kelly had come in possession of a strange alchemical manuscript called the Book of Dunstan and a small amount of mysterious red powder identified by Kelly as the magical philosopher's stone of alchemical lore. It was Kelly's suspicion that the manuscript held the key to both the preparation of more of the red powder and how to prepare from said powder an elixir that was accessible only to a very few alchemists just as molecules of metal are transformed under great increase of temperature. So the emotional elements in man and excuse me, in human nature undergo an increased intensity, which transforms them and makes them spiritual. The secret of the philosopher's stone enabled a man's soul to attain unity with the divine spirit. It was Kelly's sincere, but secret hope that D, already an accomplished alchemist, might assist him in deciphering the contents of the Dunstan manuscript. Kelly waited a year or longer, gaining the good doctor's trust while dazzling him with angelic apocalypses before he unveiled the red powder and the book of Dunstan before D. We know from the latter's diaries of the period that the yarn Kelly spun at the time for D, whose ambition to communicate with angelic beings no doubt subdued his skepticism and rendered him naive and perhaps gullible, was that he and another man, one John Husey, had been led to the mysterious objects at Northwick Hill near Blokeley in Cotswold by, quote, a spiritual creature. According to Kelly's tale, Quote, they had found these items by the direction and leading of some such a spiritual creature who then told them to return to D for an exposition of the meaning of the scroll, which was written in strange characters. The scroll contained the names of 10 places where the Danes had buried treasure in England. The powder was a form of the philosopher's stone and the book was written by the 19th century Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Dunstan, and contained the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone. End quote. This colorful explanation was no doubt titillating to Dee. However, it was also most likely a blatant lie. The more probable explanation is that Kelly acquired the powder and manuscript from an innkeeper while traveling through Wales. As the story goes, quote, one night the innkeeper brought out a tattered old book. He was accustomed to showing his customers, as a curiosity, this unintelligible old manuscript. He showed it to Kelly, who was quite well aware of the profit, sometimes to be derived from old papers, and inquired the origin of the manuscript. It appeared that a few years before, during the religious wars, some Protestant soldiers had rifled the grave of a Catholic bishop, who during his lifetime had been a very rich man. This would be Dunstan. In the grave, they found this manuscript and two ivory balls, one red and the other white. Even as the innkeeper was showing Kelly the manuscript, his children were playing with the red ball, end quote. Thinking the ball's worthless, one of the soldiers thoughtlessly tossed the white ivory ball aside, thereby breaking it on the hard ground to reveal a strange white powder contained inside that what wasn't blown away by the ensuing wind was completely lost to the moist soil. Seeing this, the unnamed soldier thought it better to take the red ivory ball back with him to see if he might sell it in town. It was in this manner that the innkeeper came to be in its possession, who then sold the relics to Kelly.
1: As
0: to the composition, of these mysterious red and white powders with what must have been a remarkable flash of insight into these mysteries, for he did not cite his sources in this case. The Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Gustav Jung declared, quote, originally the white powder was gum Arabic. Thus Heinrich Kunrath declares that the red gum is the resin of the wise, a synonym for the transformative substance, end quote. Gum Arabic, otherwise known as acacia gum, is produced from the saps of a number of acacia species, most predominantly acacia senegal and acacia nilotica, both of which are known carriers of dimethyltryptamine. DMT, on the other hand, is found within the crimson purple inner root bark of various species of acacia. The one is produced from one part of the tree, the other from another part. Insofar as most authorities on alchemy agree that both the white and the red powders originate from one and the same prima materia, it should be obvious what that materia should be. Do not be fooled by the use of the term gum here, as anyone who has dabbled in incense making knows well. Gum Arabic is regularly sold in a white powder form, just as DMT also found as a white powder, when crudely extracted from acacia, is commonly found instead in the form of a reddish orange pink goo or gum. In fact, when he first encountered actual DMT crystals, the psychedelic philosopher Terence McKenna, in his rap Alien Dreamtime, reported that the tryptamine stone resembled orange mothballs. If, as Young suggests, the white powder does indeed answer to gum Arabic, It is perhaps clear that the red powder identified by Heinrich Kunrath as the red gum or the resin of the wise must correspond to the ruddy DMT rich layer of bark inside the roots of the Acacia Senegal, Acacia nilotica, and other related species that produce both gum Arabic and DMT. We know that psychoactive compounds truly did play a rather significant role in both alchemy and in Dee's seances. Chris Bennett observes in his magnum opus, Liber 420, quote, in Dee's own accounts of his invocations or actions, as he referred to them, there are numerous references to smoke indicating the possibility of some sort of fumigation, as well as the reference to the use of potions and ointments. In Dee's record of these actions, we read how smoke filled the place, and an invoked entity states, I smell the smoke, sir, proceed with your purpose. And these could indicate suffumigation. Other references indicate some sort of elixir in use. Taste of this potion, yea, savor only of the vessel. Then it worketh most extremely against the maimed drowsiness of ignorance, says an angel. In one account from John D's Actions with Spirits, there is a lament about the lack of drugs for an operation and with the use of ointments in their place. I have forgotten all my drugs behind me, but I know that some of you are well stored with sufficient ointments, says Kelly. I do intend to visit you only with their help. You see, all my boxes of drugs are empty. Edward Kelly showeth a great bundle of empty apothecary boxes. This brings a response from the figure invoked. How cometh it you pretend to come for a favorable divine power and all your boxes are empty. The exchange over the lack of drugs also indicates that drugs were not an unusual part of these scrying sessions. As Kelly says, he forgot them as if they had, he had usually had them End quote. Ointments may be a reference to the purported flying ointments or witches' salves, allegedly in use in 15th and and 16th century England, many of which profess to contain mandrake, cannabis, opium, deadly nightshade, jimson weed, henbane, and even monkshood and foxglove. Remarkably, that Dee and Kelly habitually employed the use of drugs during their actions has been picked up on by a number of authors, most importantly by Gustav Mehrink, the author of Der Golem, a novel that makes cloaked references to psychoactive drugs in the the language of alchemy. And especially in The Angel of the West Window, which tells the tale of a delusional man who, after inheriting a cache of Dee's papers from a relative comes to believe that he is, in fact, a reincarnation of the Elizabethan Magus. Acting on this grandiose psychological inflation, the protagonist of the story pursues initiation at the hands of an adept who presents our hero with a familiar red ivory sphere containing a red grayish powder. Again, from Dan Merker. Quote, Mayrink referred to two alchemical drugs. They are kept in two small ivory spheres, the one red and the other white. The color coding referenced the king and the white queen, or the sun and moon of the alchemical wedding. The white sphere and its powder do not play a role in the novel. The red ivory sphere contains the royal red powder, the red lion, which consists of flaky purple granules. It can be used to transform base metals into gold, but when it is prepared as an incense, it has a psychoactive effect. Inhaling the red smoke enables them to step out of their bodies and cross the threshold of death. There, through marriage with their female other half, their anima or soul, which in the earthly existence almost always remained hidden, they acquire unimaginable magical powers, such as personal immortality, as the wheel of birth, comes to a standstill. In short, they achieve a kind of divine status which is denied other mortals, as long as they are ignorant of the secret of the white and red spheres. End quote. If nothing else, what this fictionalized account indicates is a long standing tradition directly associating Dee and Kelly with the use of of what Alistair Crowley, an English magician who interestingly, not unlike Mayrink's hero, claimed to be the reincarnation not only of Kelly, but also of Cagliostro called strange drugs. Part four, Elias Ashmole. While he himself was not known to have been a practicing alchemist, Ashmole was certainly an alchemical enthusiast, and he believed that alchemy was the key to Kelly's discourse with angels. We noted that Ashmole was responsible for publishing two important collections of alchemical manuscripts, Fasciculus Chemicus in 1650 and Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum in 1652. The former work was written by John Dee's only surviving son, Arthur Dee, who became an accomplished alchemist in his own right. As a young boy, Arthur recalled being present at one of Kelly's demonstrations of the stone, which no doubt made a lasting impression. The second title, an extensively annotated compilation of alchemical poems in the English language, contains another tract connected to Dee, labeled Sir Edward Kelly's Work, not surprisingly, in The Origins of Tantra, Drugs, and Western Occultism, OTO Ritual Disclosure Francis King said of Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, quote, I think Ashmole refers to processes designed to extract hallucinogens from plant sources, end quote. He may be correct. In the Prolegomena of Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, Ashmole writes of the Angelical Stone, Quote, "The angelical stone affords the apparition of angels, and gives a power of conversing with them by dreams, visions, and revelations. Nor dare any evil spirit approacheth the place where it lodgeth. As we shall see, this belief that the angelical stone affords the apparition of angels and gives the power of conversing with them would make a significant impact on the interests and activities of Robert Boyle and the fledgling Royal Society. The Atricum Chemicum Britannicum also contains a work by the alchemist and astrologer, William Backhouse entitled The Magistry. Backhouse would eventually go on in 1651 to adopt Ashmole as his spiritual heir serving as his alchemical initiator and mentor until Backhouse's death in 1662. On May 13th in 1653, Ashmole recorded in his diary that his spiritual father was laying sick in Fleet Street over at St. Dunstan's Church and not knowing whether he should live or die. Believing himself to be on his deathbed, Ashmole recorded that Backhouse was moved to reveal to him in syllables, the secret of the true philosopher's stone. While Ashmole left no indication in his writings of what this revelation may have consisted, the location at which it was given may provide a clue. For it was St. Dunstan, in whose church an ill backhouse lay, whose book Kelly acquired along with his strange, tawny powder. Did Backhouse reveal to Ashmole the true identity of Sir Edward Kelly's angelic powder? How could he have known that identity? Well, according to Arthur Versluis, a professor and department chair of religious studies in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, Backhouse's father, Samuel, had had connections with both John Dee and Edward Kelly. End quote. In 1672, Ashmole was finally able to acquire these personal diaries from a London confectioner called Mr. Jones. Discovered in a secret drawer in the bottom of an old chest, Jones's maid is said to have made use of no less than seven of the pages as kindling for the hearth before her employer realized their value. Even so, in the four years between 1672 and 1676, Ashmole began furiously translating and working practically with what remained of Dee's complex system of angel magic. As Dee's biographer, Ashmole was responsible for relaying the story of Kelly's red powder to Robert Boyle, his fellow in the Royal Society, which substance the pair believed was behind Dee and Kelly's miraculous visions. Boyle, as we shall see, was already preoccupied with an alchemical red powder. It is therefore to the proto-chemist Robert Boyle and to the Royal Society, which he founded, that we now turn the Royal Society. Robert Boyle is often recalled today as the father of modern chemistry. In addition to his earth moving theory that elements constituted perfectly unmingled bodies, which were constantly colliding and in motion. Boyle is perhaps best known for Boyle's law, a physical law describing the inverse proportional relationship between the absolute pressure and volume of a gas when the temperature is kept constant in a closed system. A founder of the Royal Society, which was created for the purpose of promulgating the scientific method, Boyle was elected a fellow in 1663 and was eventually elected its president in 1680, although he declined the position. However, what Boyle is not remembered for is his fascination with and pursuit of incorporeal spirits and hallucinogenic drugs. Indeed, it would appear that after Ashmole presented Kelly's tale, the entire royal society became fascinated with psychoactives. For example, in 2010, the Royal Society put on display a list of items Boyle wanted to acquire for the society to study. To our surprise, among those items were listed, quote, potent drugs to alter or exalt imagination, drugs to procure innocent sleep and pleasing dreams, drugs exemplified by the Egyptian electuary and and by the fungus mentioned by the French author, namely hallucinogenic drugs, end quote. Bennett explains, quote, Egyptian electuary is a likely reference to Egyptian hashish electuaries such as Majum and Dawa Mesk. The fungus mentioned by the French author may allude to a reference to an agaric mushroom in a possible entheogenic context re- recorded by Rabelais agaric being a species of mushroom that includes known psychoactive strains such as fly agaric, quote. Furthermore, in 1670 and later in 1689, alchemist, natural philosopher, architect, and polymath, Robert Hooke, whom Boyle recommended be the curator of experiments at the Royal Society in 1662, delivered two lectures on the Royal, to the Royal Society on the psychoactive, and physical effects of hashish. As Harrison points out, Hooke's friend, Sea Captain Robert Knox, brought back from his travels a strange intoxicating herb like hemp from one of his trips and gave it to Sir Isaac Newton's rival, Robert Hooke. Quote, it is a certain plant which grows very common in India, tis called by the Moors, ganja, <laughs> by the Changulis, kamsa by the Portugal's bang. The dose of it is about as much as may fill a common tobacco pipe, the leaves and seeds being dried first and pretty finely powdered. It taketh away the memory and understanding so that the patient understands not, nor remembereth anything that he seeth, heareth, or doth in that ecstasy. This is the the good part. After a little time, he falls asleep and sleepeth very soundly and quietly. (laughs) And when he wakes, he finds himself mightily refreshed and exceeding hungry. (laughs) End quote. Ergo, the Royal Society was investigating hallucinogenic drugs by name, including hashish and magic mushrooms, virtually since its inception. And we can be fairly certain that, uh, that Ashmole, as Dee's biographer, was ultimately responsible. We know from his correspondence with the English philosopher and clergyman John Glanville that Boyle was already keenly interested in the alchemical activities of one's, one Wenzel Sailor, a projector at the imperial court of Leopold I. According to Johann Beecher's Magnalia Naturae, Saylor was an Augustinian monk at Brune in Moravia. While scheming of a way to escape the monastery, Saylor came into possession of a mysterious wax ball that would magically roll toward hidden treasure. Unable to make the ball work, Saylor enlisted the aid of an elder monk who immediately understood its function. Rolling the ball in the parish, the pair noticed that it went straight toward an old pillar positioned in the abbey of the church. Later, during a renovation, the pillar was removed, uncovering an old chest that had been walled up inside the structure. They took the box, and upon opening it, Sailor was bitterly disappointed to find only a cryptic manuscript and four parcels of red powder. Sounds familiar,
1: right?
0: (laughs) He had been hoping for gold, but the old monk soon deciphered the manuscript and thus learned the identity and the use of the red powder, which was, of course, the philosopher's stone. Soon thereafter, the monk had a seizure, and as he lay dying, sailors stole the stone from him and fled the monastery. Although the Irish mathematician George Ashe, claimed in a letter to the Royal Society, dated July 9, 1691, quote, "This red powder, for sailor did not know how to prepare it himself, was obtained from the prior of an Augustinian convent, who obtained it from one Count Selic, who was privy counsellor to Rudolf II, who in turn purported to have gotten it from Edward Kelly the English scryer and friend of John D., end quote. As with Kelly's conflicting accounts, there is some confusion as to how the red powder was by Sailor acquired. That Ash ties its acquisition directly back to Kelly is interesting in any case, for while Boyle was investigating Sailor's red powder, Ashmole was busy making sense of Kelly's, only for the pair to learn later that the two substances were indeed one and in the same. Recollect that in the Prolegomena of Theatricum Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum, Ashmole wrote of the lapis, quote, the angelical stone affords the apparition of angels and gives a power of conversing with them by dreams, visions, and revelations. End quote. Robert Boyle seems to have shared this sentiment in his essay Dialogue on the Converse with Angels aided by the philosopher's stone. Boyle confesses, quote, it seems somewhat unaccountable and therefore incredible that a little powder that is as truly corporal as powder of post or of brick should be able to attract or invite incorporeal and intelligent beings that have neither need or use for gold to converse familiarly, excuse me, familiarly with those that perhaps by chance Or fraud have made themselves possessor of a few drams or ounces of transmutating powder. For what affinity or congruity can there be betwixt the stupid and inanimate elixir and a rational and immortal spirit like an angel that these beings, that these happy beings should delight to hover about it? And for its sake should be quite contrary to the custom, if not also to the polity of those blessed spirits, to discover themselves in a sensible way to the chemist that carries it about him and converse familiarly with a sinful and perhaps too an ignorant mortal from whose conversation, what advantage can we suppose these angels can expect to reap? End quote. Merker elaborated in his 2014 article, Drugs and the Occult, quote, Robert Boyle adopted Ashmole's trope, stating that it was possible or lawful by the help of a red powder, which is but a corporal and even an inanimate thing, to acquire communion with incorporeal spirits. In Ashmole, for purposes of mystification, the red powder is additionally called the red stone. The stone, Merker added perceptively, was psychoactive. Ashmole explicitly asserted that the angelical stone was psychoactive. It affords the apparition of angels. The ethereal experience was induced by that red stone." Quote. It is clear that Boyle's interest was piqued, and like our Elizabethan magus, the Litchfield antiquary, while completely invested in the fledgling scientific method, Boyle was more than a little interested in communication with what he termed incorporeal spirits. Jason Louve pointed out in his book, John D and the Empire of Angels, that Kelly's powder indeed could have been a drug. The pharmacopoeia of Elizabethan England is far removed from us, says Louve, but whatever its contents, England's alchemists surely had first pick. However, It is really immaterial whether or not Kelly's red powder was actually a drug. To be sure, Dee's diaries indicate something far more complicated was afoot than simple drug use alone. What is important is that Ashmole and Boyle believed that Kelly's powder was a drug. Moreover, they believed that this drug was responsible for Dee and Kelly's regular and miraculous angelic actions. Boyle's insight into and fascination with Kelly's red powder represents perhaps one of the earliest scientific inquiries into what we now term altered states of consciousness, placing the founder and fellow of the Royal Society at the fore of the developing discipline of psychology, a mental behavioral science that wouldn't officially be established for another century." It is from this pharmacognostic psychedelic background that John Theophilus de Sagulier, research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton and the Royal Society, emerged when he was elected to serve as the third Grand Master of the premier Grand Lodge in London, the same man whom is responsible for injecting the psychedelic sprig of acacia into Masonic ritual. Part six. Cagliostro's Egyptian Rite This might all be uh, might all appear to be based on conjecture were it not for one man's explicit announcement of the entheogenic use of the acacia in his Egyptian Rite of Freemasonry Count Alessandro di Cagliostro In the apprentice and companion degrees of his rite The acacia is referred to as being the primal matter in a very specific alchemical operation. When properly executed, this work results in the production of a cubical ashlar. That is, the result is a purified crystalline stone or salt, ostensibly DMT crystals, that has been produced from the acacia. The stone is then dissolved into a red liqueur, which is afterward imbibed by the candidate for initiation. Cagliostro's ritual states, the acacia is the prime matter. And when the rough ashlar or mercurial part has been purified, it becomes cubical. It is thus that you may bring about the marriage of the sun and the moon, and that you shall obtain the perfect projection. Quantum sufficit at quantum appetite, which means take as much as you want and as much as you have appetite for. The candidate shall drink the red liqueur placed upon the master's altar, thereby raising his spirit in order to understand the following speech, which the worshipful master shall address to him at the same time. My child, you are receiving the primal matter. Learn that the great God created before man this primal matter and that he then created man to possess it and become immortal. Man abused it and lost it, but it still exists in the hands of the elect of God. And from a single grain of this precious matter becomes a projection into infinity. The acacia which has been given to you at the degree of master of ordinary masonry is nothing but that precious matter, and Hiram's assassination is the loss of the blood you have just drank. We cannot know which species of acacia Cagliostro was using, but we can say with a fair amount of certainty that it was an entheogenic one. Given his far reaching entheogenic proclivities, the DMT rich Acacia nilotica, which appears in Egyptian art and myth in abundance, is an obvious candidate. A libation of Acacia also appears in La Tre Saint Trino Sophie, a late 18th century alchemical manuscript attributed to Cagliostro and found in his possession upon his arrest by the Inquisition. La Tres Trino Sophie depicts in its colorful pages a magical bird perched on an altar and holding within its beak a sprig of acacia. That the sprig is indeed intended to be a species of acacia is evidenced by the clearly defined bipinnate compound leaf structure characteristic of acacia and related species. In section 6 of La Tres Sainte Sophie, the same wherein the bird and the acacia appear, we read, quote, he handed me in a crystal cup a shining liqueur of saffron hue. I was about to hand the cup back after moistening my lips in the liquor when the old man said, Drink it all. It will be thy only nourishment during thy journeys. I obeyed and I felt a divine fire course through all the fibres of my being. I was stronger braver, even my intellectual powers seemed doubled." It is beyond suspicion that the shining liqueur of saffron hue described in La Tre Saint Trina Sophie is one and the same with the red liqueur mentioned in the rituals of Cagliostro's Egyptian rite, where the one generated a divine fire that coursed throughout the body, increasing strength, bravery, and intellect in its wake. The other raised the spirit while increasing understanding. All of these symptoms are consistent with the effects of low to moderate doses of DMT. Truly, in 1966, James Fadiman and Willis Harmon conducted the psychedelics and problem-solving experiment. The researchers administered low doses of mescaline to professional people, including engineers, mathematicians, and architects, who were highly motivated to solve a problem they had been working on for three months or more without success. Virtually all of the subjects reported making significant breakthroughs and producing solutions that were validated by independent tests and eventually commercial acceptance of their solutions. A more recent study, conducted by Thomas Anderson of the University of Toronto and Rodem Petranker of the University of York, found that those who had taken microdoses of psychedelic drugs such as LSD and psilocybin, quote, scored higher on measures of wisdom, open mindedness, and creativity, end quote. Following the turn of the 19th century, Cagliostro's manuscript would go on to influence the formation of a Masonic lodge, Letrinosophists formed by Belgian Freemason J.M. Ragon, whom Manley P. Hall imagines could have known the author of Lettre Saint Trinosophie as a young man. According to one source, quote, it is on the occult properties of the three equal lines or sides of the triangle that Ragon based his studies and founded the famous Masonic Society of the Trinosophists, Sophists. quote. Ragan, who in his own work, Occult Masonry, wrote at length of experiments in somnambulism or trance involving hashish, datura, henbane, and belladonna, writes, quote, The first line of the triangle offered to the apprentice for study is the mineral kingdom, symbolized by Cain. The second line on which the companion has to meditate is the vegetable kingdom, symbolized by Shibboleth. In this kingdom begins the generation of the bodies. This is why the letter G is presented radiant before the eyes of the adept. The third side is left to the master Mason, who has to complete his education by the study of the animal kingdom. It is symbolized by Mach Benach, which is the French word for our substitute word. End quote. Thus, Even at the heart of Regan's Le we find a highly suggestive alchemical treatment of Masonic symbolism. One line in particular is worth scrutinizing. In the vegetable kingdom begins the generation of the bodies. We take this sentence to mean that it is in the vegetable kingdom, using plant alchemy, where one will discover the secrets of generation. Cagliostro himself even prescribed a certain alchemical retreat for the purpose of effecting regeneration in some of his more advanced adepti. Consider the following ritual, which which comes from an alchemical manuscript titled Thesaurorum Thesaurus, a document written by Paracelsus, for regeneration. Quote: The candidate will shut themselves up in a house in the countryside, having a room whose windows are to the south. The 17th day, he will take some white drops of the balm of Azoth, six in the morning and six in the evening, and increasing the dose, two drops by day until the 32nd day. The 33rd day, after the same regime, he will remain in bed until the end of the quarantine. He will take a grain of the materia prima. On first waking, he will absorb a first grain of the universal medicine. He will repeat this the following days. After an unconsciousness of three hours, convulsions, perspirations, and considerable evacuations, he will change the bed linens. The following day, he takes the second grain of universal medicine. A deep sleep will follow. The hair, teeth, nails, and skin will blacken, fall off, and be renewed. The fortieth day he will return home rejuvenated and perfectly recreated. End quote. As to what these white drops of balm of Azoth actually consist, we can only speculate. If they happen to be some sort of an MAOI, it would make sense that Cagliostro should allow this substance to build up in the system of the candidate prior to the latter's reception of the grains of prima materia and universal medicine. Another possibility is that the drop served as some sort of purgative, purging and purifying the candidate prior to his administration of the grains. In either case, significantly The purgative properties of ayahuasca and its analogs have long been touted with the brew being known in some regions as simply la purga, the purge. May I get some more water? A grain is of course a unit of measurement used used for dispensing drugs. Equal to roughly 60 milligrams. We know from Cagliostro's ritual for his Egyptian rite that the materia prima is a spe- species of acacia, and the universal medicine, the tryptamine stone prepared therefrom by alchemical means. Moreover, the effects of the universal medicine, subjective no doubt, including the death and regeneration of the skin, nails, and teeth, etc., are in keeping with something known in anthropology as shamanic dismemberment, a a phenomenon which is extremely common to both shamanic initiation and tryptamine intoxication. Religious historian Mersha Iliade explains, quote, both spontaneous vocation and the quest for initiation involve a more or less symbolic ritual of mystical death, sometimes suggested by a dismemberment of the body and a renewal of the organs equivalent to re-entering the womb of this primordial life. That is to a complete renewal or regeneration to a mystical rebirth end quote brothers McKenna added in the invisible landscape quote, he will lie as though dead or in a trance for several days on end. Invariably, during this prolonged trance, the novice will undergo an episode of mystical death and resurrection. He may see himself reduced to a skeleton and then clothed with with new flesh. Or he may see himself boiled in a cauldron, devoured by the spirits, and then made whole again, regenerated. Or he may imagine himself being operated on by spirits, his organs removed and replaced with magical stones and then sewn up again. End quote. The anthropologist come shaman, Michael Harner said in his book, Cave and Cosmos, shamanic encounters with another reality, quote, one of the most mysterious and distinctive ways of becoming a shaman has been through the experience of the dismemberment of one's body in an altered state of consciousness. Accounts of this kind of initiatory experience are relatively common among Siberian tribes and Aboriginal Australian people, end quote. Cultural historian and philosopher Jeremy Nadler, in his amazing book, Temple of the Cosmos, The Egyptian Experience of the Sacred, provides some insight into the psychic nature of shamanic dismemberment. Quote, in the process of initiation, the overall experience of unitary self-consciousness is broken down altogether in order to rebuild it More strongly, the import, excuse me, the important initiatory idea of dismemberment becomes comprehensible when it is seen as the only way of describing the experience of catastrophic psychic fragmentation. The mutilation of the body undergone by Osiris was the prototype of psychic fragmentation that must have been experienced by the initiate in a psycho physical way. This psychic fragmentation was precipitated as a prelude to the initiates re-identifying with a new psychic center that transcended the distributed psyche. The healing of the limbs, the restoration of the members of the dismembered body is a theme that runs through the sacred literature of ancient Egypt. It was the climax of the Osirian initiation, which involved the experience of dismemberment. This was the final rite of passage." End quote. What we're seeing with Cagliostro's retreat for regeneration, therefore, is nothing shy of a sort of shamanesque alchemical initiation, replete with an ayahuasca analog, the motif of shamanic dismemberment and followed by a rebirth, Or regeneration experience. Part seven, our concluding remarks. The idea that a psychedelic drug could have played a part in early Masonic ritual is often met by members of the fraternity with repugnance and disbelief. After all, we as free and accepted Masons are charged with the task of peacefully submitting to the laws of the land wherein we reside. One must keep in mind, however, that the time in question was the 18th century and earlier, when scientific investigation was still in its infancy, long before the war on drugs was even a concept. The detrimental effects of addiction were for the most part still to be seen, as were the hard drugs which are so plaguing society today, such as crack cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. Therefore, outside of chronic alcohol and opium abuse, the stigma which surrounds the use of essentially any drug in this day and age was for them completely foreign. As Jamie Paul Lamb points out in his introduction to my new book, the experiences elicited by entheogens such as DMT would have been interpreted by these men in terms of the prophets, Enoch and Ezekiel, and in terms of visionary prophets like Paul and John of Patmos. And that, dear brethren, is the context in which we, I believe, should ourselves view them. We close this talk on the hidden roots of the acacia symbol within Freemasonry with a quote by H.L. Haywood, extracted from the supplemental volume three of Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry and its kindred sciences, which quaintly confirms our current conclusion. Quote, it is admitted that the texts and nomenclature, of medieval materials on hermetism were cryptic and queer. But for that, there are several explanations for the need for secrecy, including the need to keep laymen from endangering themselves with drugs they could not understand." End quote. Surely DMT would fall into that category. And that wraps up my talk, brethren. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for questions. Anybody have questions?
1: <laughs> I just have to start out and say thank you mm. for the research that you've done in this.
0: Uh, it's a labor of love.
1: Absolutely the. incredible. Uh, I loved your first book. I can't read, thank you. wait to read your second Uh
0: The information
1: that you brought forth, I mean, there's so much stuff that just pops from masonry, you know, especially when you look at the colors and you see the black, the red, the white, even the A, the the chalk, the the charcoal, the clay, you know, that that, that pops up, Um, you know, you see from the alchemical plates that have been made with the penalties of the obligations falling into the elements for that, Mm -hmm. You you have captured all of this your explanation. You know, it's in there. Just, I am just uh, amazed and uh you know, it, it's crazy before I'd ever read your book and I had to thank Brother Warren, uh wherever Warren is back here, what's up? Um, so I had been reading some stuff, and I came up one day, and I said, "I think that uh, DMT might uh, actually be the philosopher's stone." And he said, we need to read this book," and I read your book. Spot on, and, yeah. And, and I was just amazed by it. And uh, it's
0: not what you know. We, it's not the philosopher's stone. We have to qu- qualify it because. It's it's wrong to think of alchemy as one thing, right, one right, continuous thing, but this in this case, that's absolutely what they're talking about. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: and um, you know it, it makes sense when you look at primitive societies. Even when you go back to early Christianity and early Judaism, there is a lot of evidence of the use of psychedelics in mm-hmm. ritual amongst the elite class, the, you know, the, the secret class, those
0: who were in the know. It was recently discovered um, the use of cannabis in ancient Judaism along with the Shara worship. All that was uh, speculation up until just a few months ago. Now we know that's right. true. Right. And you mentioned the symbolic minerals. I I think those are fascinating to chalk, charcoal, and clay because uh, when we're dealing with substances like this, a lot of them cause gastric disturbances they don't feel so great once you've gotten them in your belly and uh chalk charcoal and clay anybody who has been through the military especially there are um what is the there's a a handbook that's given out to pilots uh then it's escaping me because it's a series of numbers it's not a standard title of a book but in it it says if you find yourself stranded somewhere, experiencing gastric disturbances, you need to eat, and it says it in this order: chalk, charcoal, and clay. Right. You know, and I was just like thinking, uh, <laughs> how uh, this can't be for the terrible meals we're often presented with at lodge. To, yeah. You know, something, something. So I thought, you know, that's very. Uh, very strange and i don't i i don't buy into the notion that anything in freemasonry is haphazard or one-dimensional there's so much to it that uh really has to be kind of worked at from every facet and you start coming up with these weird things like the digestive nature of the symbolic minerals which would never even enter an entered apprentice's mind or much or the person giving him that lecture and yet here it is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, thank you.
1: Hey, Dan, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, the reasons for the timetable for this sort of use wrapping up, winding down?
0: I think a lot of it has to do with the same reasons we see entheogens being both used and derided in 19th century occultism my personal suspicion is that it has something to do with this gnostic dualistic tendency to see anything from nature as invalid if it's going to be valid at all it has to come from some kind of a religion now i i'm 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 a christian i think about religion i think about the revelation i think about the importance of the revelation and that's and i think what They're also thinking about that, but it's clouding their view of nature as a theophany, as the manifestation that deity has presented man. To just brush it aside, I think it comes from this tendency to say the body is a prison instead of saying the body is the means by which my spirit finds expression. And I think that tendency leads to this equal tendency to reject nature and to reject anything nature could offer i think a lot of it is this inherent notion of um if i'm going to do something and, and it's going to be valid it needs to be a practice that was created per revelatum and i and i think it that's a fallacious view because nature is no less a revelation it's just the one that's obvious it's easy to dismiss but uh no less miraculous. And I think that's probably where it comes from because you look at like, for example, the Golden Dawn or in the uh, SRIA, the Rosicrucian group that gave way to the Golden Dawn, all those guys were using entheogens. They were all, and at the same time, they were saying they weren't. Um, You know, there's lots of positive and negative that can be said for figures like Aleister Crowley, but he was probably the first person to be honest about it and say, yeah, this is what we're doing but it's rejected over and over. We know that like Arthur Edward Waite, for example, with uh, another poet named um, Simmons, were are experimenting with a group of Martinists with uh, hashish and opium. Uh, we know that Robert Wentworth Little, who founded SRICF, uh, SRIA, and which is SRICF being our American branch of that. Um, he was a, in a group of seers under a man named Frederick Hockley. Um, and Hockley was uh, he, he was a bookseller, but he would copy out grimoires, alchemical manuscripts, he'd make copies of them and sell them. Hockley was their teacher and he taught them scrying, how to use crystals and mirrors, magic mirrors. But the means by which they did this was with drugs. They weren't just staring into mirrors. We know this because two of his students, F.G. Irwin and his son, Herbert Irwin, in an attempt to contact Cagliostro, through this same means, died of an overdose of lobdum, doing this to try and get the visions to happen. So it's they weren't just using them; they were using them in excess. And I think that excessive part probably plays a role into why another you know another factor in why we see it hushed. Uh, because again, these when when Desaguliers when these men were were doing what they were doing. I don't think they could have put it into the kind of a context. And they didn't have the, the, um, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like I said in the talk, addiction wasn't a real problem. You know, it wasn't something that, uh, um, and where it was a problem, like I said, it's alcohol And it's opium two drugs notoriously not responsible for the induction of the variety of visions we're talking about so uh, very different i think and but why it disappeared and why it even popped up you know it's really hard to trace and hard to answer i think we've gotten close with the with what the royal society was doing and answering how it happened but as far as where it went who knows, you know, there could be schools still practicing this. I have no idea, you know.
1: So hey. how did a candy maker come into the possession of the powder projection and manuscripts? Like, like how did, like, was the, were they put it in the candy? Like
0: the what, candy.
1: There's a candy maker that came into the possession of the papers.
0: The confectioner. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um,
1: was that like for like, people taking gummy drops that had like stuff in it. Like, no, he <laughs> he
0: he didn't know what he had. This was just a confectioner that had bought okay. this. Uh, wasn't, like, part of the
1: narrative. No, no, no. Well, I he that, I was like, what is that? he
0: had got. You know, That's you might be onto something I haven't even thought about. But what what I think was going on is they the this uh, what was his name Smith, Mister Smith comes into the possession of a trunk that. I've read one account that said he got it in an estate sale. Another said he acquired it as a gift, but it had a false bottom in it. And that's what, if you go and look up uh, Joseph Peterson, the famous author, Joseph Peterson, he published, it's called John Dee's Five Books of Mystery. That's those papers. Yeah, you can go get that. Uh, the earlier papers is called A True and Faithful Relation of John Dee with Some Spirits. And this was written... Back in the 19th century, but uh, it, it's the first half. Everything else was thought lost. Um, of course, we don't have those seven pages that uh, <laughs> that served as kindling. Somebody, hopefully. Can I ask
1: a, a different question. You mm-hmm. mentioned this. I, I have this. There's a moment where you're talking about the salts. Mm-hmm. Do they make a cubicle shape? Can they be dissolved in sweat blood, and water
0: is that a they, they can when what when you're stone? preparing DMT uh, all crystals form because of their and I'm not a, uh, I'm not at all a chemist or uh, even really know much about science but uh, what I understand is they have a, a, a crystalline structure that's unique to each crystal that forms with DMT it forms as shards. But you can rewash it, um, and it'll it will produce cubes. There's pictures. Well, they're more they have almost octagonal edges to them. But um, but yeah, it does form a a a geometric structure. Now the 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 use of them talking about cubical stone. Is simply him trying to appropriate the language in Masonic terms.
1: Going the
0: other they're bringing Mas- they're bringing alchemy to Masonry and interpreting alchemy in Masonic terms. Um, so yeah, definitely an, an, an a case of appropriation. Not, I don't think inherent in the tradition because we had ca- cassia first, unless they were doing some alchemical operations with cassia and producing some cinnamon oil, which is, seems highly unlikely and strange um is the,
1: thinking about the 18th degree a lot throughout all this
0: yeah there do you know chuck dunning he wrote contemplative masonry he gave a lecture um i wasn't present for it but on on the fifth degree tracing board as being alchemical apparatus and the acacia being what you're feeding into it. But it's got the ropes coming around it, and he interprets this as modes of distillation. And, um, but yeah, he went for the fifth degree, not the 18th degree. And um, I found some pretty interesting stuff in the Night of the Sun degree, which is where Pike, you know, he hid a lot of the quote unquote Rosicrucian hermetic stuff in there. It's a good one. Anybody else? Well, thank you, brethren. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much. My pleasure.